friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations, we are focusing on China. Here in the U.S., we are consumed, and rightly so, with things like COVID, the lockdown, the ensuing economic consequences, the coming very decisive elections, and civil unrest, which does not seem to be abating. But across the ocean in Asia, we are watching tremendous changes taking place, affecting millions of our brothers and sisters. For instance, in Hong Kong, the communist government of mainland China has recently moved to criminalize free speech for the seven and a half million people in Hong Kong who are used to the freedoms and opportunities that we enjoy here in the West. We are thrilled that Bill McGurn, journalist with the Wall Street Journal and former speechwriter for George W. Bush, is here with us to talk about the brave people of Hong Kong who are not hesitating to demand the human rights that the PRC is eager to take away from them. We especially want to ask him about Jimmy Lai, billionaire businessman who rose from nothing and now controls a media empire pretty much devoted to the preservation of democracy and free speech in Hong Kong. He was arrested recently on charges of sedition and terrorism for breaching the city's new national security law. Welcome to Conversations, Bill McGurn. Thank you. This week, you published a beautiful story in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Jimmy Lai. And you titled the piece A Man for All Seasons, which is very evocative. Obviously, you're comparing him to St. Thomas More. You begin the piece very movingly by talking about a picture that you have of Jimmy Lai in handcuffs. And you talk about this photo being the most treasured one of your godson. And what does this photo mean to you exactly? Well, what happened is last week when he was arrested and police raided his next magazine office, you know, because of the time difference, it happened late at night here. And I got a message from his wife, Teresa, saying that her husband was in handcuffs and so forth. And she really was distressed in the sense that those handcuffs were really designed to humiliate the guy. They didn't need handcuffs. My, my dad was an FBI agent for 30-something years. You know, he didn't always put handcuffs on people. These were designed to humiliate the man in front of all Hong Kong. But Teresa said, you know, they, they look at it as his, his way of the cross. And uh, he chose those handcuffs, and everyone in Hong Kong knew it. So the, the gesture that the police intended to publicly shame Jimmy Lai, it, it actually backfired. People thought, wow, this man is, is must be something willing to willing to submit to this. And they bought the stock of his company. They bought more of his newspapers and so forth. So it it really backfired these say which is which is so common in christian history right i mean the cross mm -hmm. backfired the cross was a symbol of humiliation and defeat christians believe we've triumphed over the cross mm -hmm. Yes, what, what is a scandal, right, to the pagans right. is a pride to, to the Christian who understands right. that the way of suffering uh, and the way of self-negation uh, is the way to God. 
Yes, so I can see how that picture would be so evocative. And I called, I went ahead and called him your godson without explaining. And you are an important part of his biography because you're his godfather. So how did you meet uh, your godson, Jim and I? Years ago, I was in Hong Kong twice. The first time as a single man and the second time as uh, as a married man. And the second time I went, I was working for something called the Far Eastern Economic Review. It's it's no longer in print, but it was kind of like an economist for Asia. And I discovered, and Hong Kong was very, very expensive, right? And I discovered this new clothing chain, Giordano, that sold, it, it kind of was like a Land's End or something, you know, sold polo shirts and so forth, but very bright, very cheaply. You know, it was really aimed at the middle class, like good quality at a good price. And Hong Kong didn't have that. Hong Kong was the kind of place where you could pay thousands of dollars for something Gucci or or you could buy something off the street for 50 cents that might have been some designer thing. But it was not consistent. You couldn't go to the store and say, I want a green polo shirt and, mm. and get it quite as cheaply. So it was really revolutionary for Hong Kong. It was the first kind of chain that catered to the middle class. And it was very bright and cheerful, kind of modeled on the gap a little bit. So we did a story on him. And then my boss sent me a note. And my boss, uh, then Gordon Krovitz, had very spiny handwriting. And it said, Jimmy claims to be the only man in Hong Kong who's read all of Engels. And uh, reference to Friedrich Engels. And I thought, wow, well, that's an achievement, but it's kind of like being the second tallest building in Wichita. Um, <laughs> and then I, I realized he didn't mean Engels. He meant Friedrich Hayek, oh, yes. who's sort of, you know, an Austrian economist, uh, very dear to those of us who really value freedom and so forth and liberty. So we met at his house and had dinner. And then we just we just hit it off. And my wife, uh, Julie, and his wife, Teresa, just became fast friends. We were both having children at this time. You know, I brought back my first daughter from China. It was adopted Grace. And no one was more welcoming than the Lai family to, uh, to my new family. So we just got along so well. And over the years, our families have become very entwined. Jimmy's wife, Teresa, is godmother to my daughter, Maisie. And uh, my wife, Julie, is goddaughter, uh, godmother to his daughter, Claire. So we're just, it's, he's, he's really family more than, um, more than a friend or an acquaintance. And when you met Jimmy Lai, was he in the process of becoming a Catholic? No, his wife, Therese, is a very strong Catholic and always, always wanted to be. And I have to, and so right before the handover in the middle of 1997, at one point I just decided I'm going to ask him if he wants to become a Catholic because he was very sympathetic you know, he had a lot of Catholic friends. His wife was Catholic and really was praying for him to come over. But we all knew he had to do it, you know, on his own. No mm-hmm. one could force him. So sure. I asked him, I asked him about a month before the handover. and He said, no, <laughs> he just, he didn't think he, he didn't think that was for him. So, you know, you accept that because that's his choice. And then something like two weeks later, or three weeks later, he called me over and said, you know, I want to have Christ in my life. And uh, he went to the Cardinal because he knew him, Cardinal, great leader for Hong Kong. And uh, the Cardinal baptized him about a week before Hong Kong, maybe not even a full week before Hong Kong was turned over to the Chinese. And remember, for people like us, that was a really sad time. And adding to it was that the weather in Hong Kong was super humid, very dark and kind of stormy, very heavy and gloomy. And we were thinking, and this this um, baptism, you know, in the cathedral there, it was it was really like a shaft of light breaking through the storm. And 
Jimmy's not looked back. I think it gives him great peace. He's been tremendous friends with the Cardinal. And his again, his wife is really the, not me, his wife was really the, the mover behind this. How interesting that it was just at that moment of such darkness when Hong Kong was feeling that terrible <laughs> hand of China wrapping itself around its neck, right? Wrapping its hand around the neck yeah, of Hong he, Kong um, in 1997. Let me say the difference between us is I'm very much an Irish Catholic and prone to gloom and despondency about what's going on. Jimmy doesn't have that. We went to a mass the Sunday before the handover. The handover was on a Tuesday. Again, the weather was horrible. To the cathedral. And the governor then was Chris Patton, also a very strong Catholic. And it was such, it, it was one of the most memorable masses that I had ever attended because the gospel was uh, Paul's words, the time of my dissolution is near, which really fit Governor Patton for all he had done and when we got outside, Jimmy was just, you know, Jimmy's just Jimmy. He said, in the kingdom of God, there's no despair. And that's how he faces life. Oh, how beautiful. Then he's prepared, right, for what's happening now. And he's very prepared. He, he, he again, um, very much unlike me, he's, he's, he's very prepared. And, um, you know, a lot of people, look, the, the incredible thing about Jimmy's arrest and choosing those handcuffs, he's a billionaire. He has an apartment in Paris. Mm -hmm. I think he has a house in Tokyo. He's been to London all the time, could live there. He could live anywhere. And he could have escaped all this. He could have either sold his publication rather than watch it being driven into the ground by um, the authorities, or he could have um, just stayed abroad and and not been touched by. It. He chose to go back to put make himself vulnerable for this. And people, I think some of his even friends said, "Jimmy, why don't you just you know go to the United States, go to Britain, go to Taiwan?" Anyone that thought that was a possibility doesn't know Jimmy Lai. He just he's just a man who doesn't run or trim his sails. And the result was was those handcuffs that the whole world saw. And back in '97, when the handover happened. This was what's happening now in Hong Kong is what people were rightfully afraid would happen, that the idea of one country, two systems was not something that could be sustained because of the aggression of the Chinese communist government, which must feel a sense of shame that a little tiny area, Hong Kong, thrives right on the on the edge of right. China and has such a high, I think it's number four on the human development index right. um, of all countries in the world. They want to, of course, crush that freedom. Uh, just recently, they passed the, a security law, which is what uh, Jimmy is accused of violating. And it, it includes charges of things like terrorism and sedition and cooperating with a foreign government. Now, obviously, none of these things actually happened, right? Right. I mean, this is all trumped up. Uh, they don't like him because not just because he's sort of a dissident voice, they can they can kind of deal with an individual, but his printing press is the only real institutional force that is a counter to all the propaganda. You mentioned 1997, you know, back when the deal was hatched to send Hong Kong back to China, there was a lot of happy talk. You know, people were even talking about the tail wagging the dog, meaning mm -hmm. that Hong Kong would lead China and its direction rather than Hong Kong going in China's direction. And I'm proud to say that my newspaper, the Wall Street Journal, even even before I was in Asia, the, my predecessor is now my boss, Paul Jago, expressed a lot of skepticism of the idea of a communist country preserving a, a free market, real paradise for Chinese people. And we see how quickly 
China's destroyed Hong Kong. I mean, it's amazing how incompetent they are. I've said before, it's like it's like watching a, a violin in the hands of a chimpanzee. Wow. They just don't know and they don't care. And and I think people outside Hong Kong uh, sometimes don't realize what Hong Kong meant to Chinese people. Hong Kong, when, when the British first got it, Lord Palmerston said it's a barren rock with hardly a house on top of it. It has no natural resources. By any of the world's secular definitions, it's overpopulated. In the 50s, when uh, China went communist, it doubled its population with refugees um, living on the hillside. But because of the freedom, that Hong Kong was a place that Chinese swam through shark-infested waters to get to and so forth. And because of the freedom, it prospered. And it it's a showcase of what Chinese people can accomplish if they're just given the freedom to do it. I'm listening to your imagery and I'm thinking of, I'm in Miami, I'm a Cuban from Miami. I'm just thinking of all the Cubans swimming to Miami. Imagine if Miami were handed over to Cuba. Right. <laughs> No, it's it's it, it really is uh, the Cuba comparison is very apt because today we think of Cuba as backward. You know, they're driving cars from 60 years ago, you know, all duct tape up and backwards and, and, you know, economically backwards and so forth and poor. But we forget that Cuba was a prosperous society before the communists took over and they just wrecked it. Now, I'm afraid that's what they've done to Hong Kong. You can't see it particularly right now because there's still gleaming buildings and so forth. But I expect in, you know, the early 60s, you could still see a lot of modern gleaming buildings and so forth. But eventually they just drove it into the ground. And that's that's what they're doing to Hong Kong. And, you know, they want to drive it into the ground. They want to destroy it because the same way that the communist regime wants to destroy the all these traces of the beautiful life that existed in Cuba before the revolution, mm -hmm. China is going to want to do that in Hong Kong because it's a, sh it's a sense of shame. It causes shame for them that their system creates poverty and creates uh, oppression. I, I think it's slightly different in Hong Kong this way. China has opened up to the market and global trade. And Hong Kong was a big part in China's development because a lot of Western capital came through Hong Kong and a lot of contracts were written in Hong Kong and so forth. Mm. But I think China's calculated, we don't need them anymore. And I think it's not so much, they like the riches that Hong Kong brings, but they like power more. And they just, what they can't abide in Jimmy Lai is they can't have a Chinese who insists on telling the truth about communism and so forth. They just cannot tolerate that. And so if they have to choose, they're going to choose power. In the last year or so, we've seen enormous demonstrations in Hong Kong. I think there was one in 2019 where over a million people, this is in a country of seven and a half million, so right. this is a huge proportion of the population, demonstrated peacefully for um, against the extradition law that was being proposed at that time. Is Jimmy, uh, for, for the people in, in Hong Kong who, who care, who, who want freedom and democracy, is he a lightning rod for them? He is. And uh, th there are actually two demonstrations that I believe had more than two million people show up. Yeah. And it was, as you say, over the extradition law. The law would have allowed Hong Kong to extradite people guilty of certain crimes, loosely defined as against the national security of China, to China for prison. Everyone recognized that for what it was. If we have this, there is no difference between Hong Kong and China. And Hong Kong's whole raison d'etre, its its whole reason is that it's not China. It's Chinese, but not China. And that's why people really came out against it, because they recognized what this means. And you have to remember, it also comes on the heel of there were some booksellers in Hong Kong. You know, the, in, in Asia, 
there are a lot of shops they make these very cheap paperbacks but they get they're very timely it's it's, it's almost like a cross between a, a magazine or a newspaper and a book and they sell these things and there was booksellers who sold books i believe about the corruption of some of the chinese leaders well i think it was is either two or three of them suddenly woke up one day in china the chinese came and nabbed them somewhere else i think one was in thailand and one was in hong kong and suddenly they're on the mainland subject to mainland justice that's very very scary for these hong kong people and it's one of the things we worry about jimmy even though there's no law and carrie lamb the chief executive you know says we're not gonna apply it who, who believes them you know could he wake up one day in um, china he's 72 years old He's got diabetes, has to worry about COVID. You know, I think a China, uh, going to China to prison would be a death sentence. Wow, how, how terrifying. And yet he's a man who, even at the age of 11, showed tremendous bravery. Right. Tell us about right. how he made his way to Hong Kong. It's fascinating Well, I don't story. know all the details. I think he went to Macau first, and then he kind of smuggled in a fishing vessel. And he got to Hong Kong as a kid, kind of lived on the streets. He then, he then got jobs in the uh, the garment industry as for a, a child, while. He, as a child yeah, laborer, we, we should child, add, right? And he, yeah, and he came over to the U.S. I forget how old he was, and he kind of worked in the garment district in Manhattan. You know, the where they're pushing the um, pushing the racks of clothes sure. and so forth. And then he got the idea later to um, to open his clothing chain. And chain, and in fact, Giordano was named after a pizzeria. Oh. Um, that he, to go I to it in, Italian. Uh, in New York and so forth. So he just is, it's just a fascinating life. When he was in the U.S., there was a Jewish friend of his in the industry. I, he, Jimmy may have lived with him for a while, but that is the gentleman who introduced him to Hayek. And Jimmy really, you know, he became friends with Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and so forth. Um, you know, he, he really is an apostle of freedom. Amazing. And, and was it, he, he founded his media company with, I read, $100 million of his own money. Mm -hmm. uh, did he do that specifically before the handover in order to uh, promote democracy and, and freedom of yeah, speech? Yeah, I think... I think it was either before the Tiananmen massacres. Look, he's he's interested in the news, and and he saw an opportunity. He founded a, I think the first was a Next magazine, which was a highly popular magazine. They're kind of tabloids, and I don't read Chinese, so I can't you know read it all. But they were very revolutionary. Like Next used to come, it'd be like getting two magazines, and that meant there were two different covers, so the the newsstand guys could tuck one inside the other and choose what cover they wanted. He's just very entrepreneurial in how he does it even if he does what other people do like founding a newspaper or a magazine he doesn't do it in the same way Mm -hmm. There's always something different. And how has Beijing reacted over the years to his uh, media empire? They've attacked him and called him names. I think the foreign minister has called him a traitor several times. And, uh, you know, the Chinese tend to use very um, kind of colorful language when they denounce people. The, one of Jimmy's friends, Martin Lee, also a Catholic, the founder of Hong Kong's democratic movement and so forth. He's, he's also like sort of in his 80s now. I remember one time Martin was coming over to the U.S. and the, the Chinese foreign minister said he's like a turtle walking, you know, walking along the beach and then the big giant bird like China drops a big heavy rock on it. I mean, that's the kind of language that they use. But they and they and what they really did was try to scare people from advertising in Jimmy's magazine, saying, you know, if you, you advertise in Next or Apple, you know, we don't consider you much of a friend. They've made it a real struggle for political reasons. 
which is again is something that Hong Kong. One of the the beauty of Hong Kong is that polit business was business and politics was politics, and under the British, they really left it, it left your businesses alone, and that's very different from China. In England, they have a very strong sense of a relationship with Hong Kong, obviously, uh, after the his, uh, long history. And uh, Lord Alton of Liverpool, this week, he wrote a piece in the Hong Kong Free Press about Jimmy's situation, and it reads: History tells us that regimes die from their own poison after gagging the press, and it calls your godson the antidote to this poison, and calls on the media worldwide to be reporting on the situation. Why aren't we hearing more uh, sirens about? Well, I think because it's become much more drastic uh, after the demonstrations, and when China passed that national security law, they basically said, "We heard you, Hong Kong, and we don't care. We're going mm -hmm. full steam ahead." And uh, you know, this this is a big deal for the U.S. The U.S. has billions of dollars invested in Hong Kong; it's been a gateway to China for it. You know, I think we're losing it. I mean, the attraction of Hong Kong was the rule of law and freedom, and those things are now being thrown over the wayside and uh, you know as you mentioned like with Cuba I don't I, this is going to have huge implications who wants to who would want to invest more money in Hong Kong today take that risk do you think people will be emigrating from Hong Kong if they can some of them I mean the tragedy is I mean I hope some of them come to the US some of them are my friends but I'm thinking of the kid who's 19 maybe didn't go to university looking at a job what's what's his options oh. for the future it's just it's It's very dispiriting to think of ordinary people and just how their futures are being so constricted. You know, there's no exit for them. What about the Catholic Church in Hong Kong? How do you see them reacting? The Catholic Church is actually very strong in Hong Kong for years, so I think Catholics are under 5% of the population. It's had an oversized influence on educating a lot of Hong Kong's elites. A lot of the schools are Catholic schools and so forth. But China has tried to move in. You know, they're telling the schools they have to um, teach sort of Chinese patriotism, which means communist patriotism and so forth. And uh, they've been blessed to have uh, what I consider a tremendous leader in Cardinal Zen, who's very brave. And people trust him because they see the communists don't like him. And the communists are kind of afraid of him um, because he has such moral authority. But Cardinal Zen is retired. He's um, in his late 80s, so it doesn't look so bright to me. And I have to say, Hong Kong has this, and where is the Vatican? Cutting the deals with the people that are oppressing Hong Kong. That's a very, very sad and disturbing thing. I have a lot of trouble wrapping my head around that. Yeah, I have <laughs> trouble, trouble wrapping my head. I have trouble with what they've chosen. It's just outrageous. Jimmy's been arrested. Martin Lee, a Catholic,'s been arrested. No, not a peep of protest from the Vatican. Probably the two most prominent Catholics in Hong Kong. That seems wrong on so many levels. Right. Bill, I don't want to. I don't want to stop uh, this this interview without mentioning our next. My next guest is, just produced a documentary on China's one-child policy mm -hmm. and the repercussions still being felt. Today, of course, it, it goes on. It's, it's called the right. two-child policy, but it, the, the horrors are the same. And you and I are both connected. I think I can speak about this because you've written about it several times. We both have daughters from China. For me, it connects me deeply to the plight of my brothers and sisters in China. I feel uh, very strongly that they're, that what happens to them happens to me. And I'm so thankful that even though the one-child policy is brutal and has caused so much human suffering, there are some children, like our daughters, yours and mine, who have somehow God's been able to bring blessings out of this for our families, at least, and for our daughters. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it behooves us not to forget the ones that are left behind. But what China's doing is barbaric. And again, this, this highlights the difference between Hong Kong and China. Hong Kong was a free marketplace where no one starves right? They can feed themselves. You know how many people have over the years predicted Hong Kong would, would suffer because of overpopulation? You know, in a free market, every additional person is an asset, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, whereas in China, in communist China, every additional person is someone else feeding at a limited yes. pie. You know, they look at, they look at people as mouths, mm-hmm. right? You got to feed. And in a free market, they're looked at as minds. And look at what Hong Kong's done. No one goes starving in Hong Kong. You know, starvation and stuff is a man-made phenomena by people who don't value human life, literally, and don't recognize that it's an asset, you know? I mean, by definition, everyone that works in a free society contributes more than he takes away because you don't get the full value of your work. You get some percentage and your boss, whoever you're working for, gets the other. It's, it's probably the worst aspect of China that instead of blaming communism, they blamed having too many people and they've hunted these women down and forced them to abort and it's just gruesome and taking their children from them right it's right. so terrible you right. know Bill um, it, it seems to me that, that someone like Jimmy Lai who is able to put aside uh, his own comfort his own fear of suffering his own safety and his own freedom for the good of, of others is a real beacon of hope for all of us who worry about our brothers and sisters in China he is you know about a year ago maybe a little longer when the protests in Hong Kong first uh, broke out, I was saying what China's risking, I was noting the same thing you were, the, the two million people who showed up, said China is taking two million law-abiding people and turning them into dissidents. Mm-hmm. And now we have a billionaire who's a dissident. What does that tell you? And again, his great witness is, this is a man willing to give up the comforts of a billionaire's life for the Chinese prison cell of a dissident. I mean, that's an incredible witness and, and we're all blessed by it. And what they really need are prayers now because there's, there's not much else we have. Well, I promise you I'll be praying, Bill, and I, and I think our listeners will also take time out of every day and pray for Jimmy Lai and his wife and all those brave people of Hong Kong. And Bill, thank you so much for being here today and giving us this eye-opening account of all that's going on. If you want to read more of Bill's wonderful work, you can visit WSJ.com and find him on Twitter at WJ McGurn. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks, Gracie. Next, we continue our conversation on China with Nick Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute. He recently released a documentary on the detrimental impact of China's one-child policy. But first, we chat with my good friend and colleague Maureen Ferguson about some very exciting news this week. President Trump posthumously pardoned Susan B. Anthony as we mark 100 years of women's suffrage. Next on EWTN Radio. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I've invited my good friend Maureen Ferguson and my colleague at the Catholic Association to talk about something really interesting that happened this week. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Gracie. So there was an interesting event at the White House this week. President Trump had invited some women in to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which of course gave women the right to vote. As part of the 
ceremony, President Trump gave a pardon, a posthumous pardon to Susan B. Anthony, who was, of course, one of the great early suffragists fighting for the women's right to vote. But as part of her campaign for the women's right to vote, she, in an act of civil disobedience, went and illegally voted in the presidential election of 1873. And for this, she was convicted of illegally voting and she was fined $100. So (laughs) President Trump surprised everyone in the Oval Office this week and issued a pardon for Susan B. Anthony. So Trump is a great showman. He seems to have a real knack for finding moments in which he can use the power of the stage to make a statement. So what do you think was a statement that he was trying to make? I think he was just trying to call attention to this wonderful anniversary. And it certainly did indeed draw a whole lot more media interest and attention. People like us look at Susan B. Anthony and we see a woman who had you know great tenacity and in her fight for human rights as I mean it wasn't just a woman's right to vote she was an abolitionist she was an advocate of proper education of women equal pay all these things but what a lot of people don't know is that she also was very much anti-abortion and as most of the early feminists were the early suffragists had a, a far more authentic view of womanhood than the modern day feminist and they were very very much anti-abortion which is why one of the nation's leading pro-life groups is called the Susan B. Anthony List. If you take a step back into history and you consider abortion from the perspective of the suffragettes, it's very clear that abortion was an extremely dangerous, it was a savage procedure that was really something that women resorted to out of a deep necessity because of poverty, because of the irresponsible man in their lives that had abandoned them because they'd been abused by somebody. And they went and and had this horrible, painful, dangerous procedure performed in which they were made to destroy their own children because of a grave necessity. So this was all very clear to all the suffragettes, as far as I can tell. And then the perception of abortion changed maybe because abortion became more medically safe for the for the mother and less painful. But I would contend that it is still exactly the same procedure in which a woman is driven to uh, the terrible necessity or, or believing that she has a necessity to destroy her own child because of outside forces. And in this case, in today's environment, because of sexual liberation, the, the way that we're all told that we don't have to have self-control and instead can use abortion as a, as a backup. It's exactly right that the nature of abortion has not changed at all over the past 100 years. Yes, we have better medical care if there are complications and such, but the early feminists viewed abortion as a form of violence against both women and their prenatal children. And they actually referred to abortion as prenatal infanticide. Mm -hmm. So they very much viewed abortion as a violent solution to, as you mentioned, men's irresponsibility is how they generally saw it. They saw this as an act of violence against women and unborn children. And that is sadly true today. We think because we live in modern times where there has been so much progress in the areas of science and medicine and people, their lives are so much more comfortable. We think that we have new knowledge, but it seems to me that the early suffragettes like Susan B. Anthony knew more than we do. Definitely. And you know what I just was coming to mind as we were talking?
talking about their sort of more authentic view of womanhood, I'm always reminded of John Paul II's document, Molieris Dignitatum, on the dignity and vocation of womanhood, talking about that unique feminine genius. And I just think those early feminists had a far better sense of that than today's feminists who unfortunately have embraced so much of an agenda that is actually harmful to women. Well, amen. I agree with you there, Maureen. And thank you for joining me today to talk about this very interesting move uh, from President Trump. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we continue our conversation on China, this time with Nick Eberstadt. He's an Asian economy expert for the American Enterprise Institute, and he just released a mini documentary called Why China's One-Child Policy is a Tragedy Like No Other. Welcome to the program, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Nick, I think that your documentary re-examining the detrimental impact of China's one-child policy on the country could not come at a better time. We're hearing so many different difficult things out of China, how the government is increasing its control over the population in various nefarious ways. But what specifically led you to produce this documentary and why now? I've been following China as best I can uh, all of my adult life. I was a critic of the Chinese population control program, the one-child policy, as soon as outsiders started to learn about its details back in the early 1980s. And I can uh, tell you that back then, uh, there were more apologists for population control in China than, than you might imagine. The culture of death promoted by the Chinese Communist Party, not just in the forcible abortions and the one-child mode, but also in the eugenics and in the murderous population control for ethnic minorities, such as the Uyghurs, is a reality that I've been aware of and sensitive to for a very long time. And this seemed to be one way of performing a sort of a public education function about some of these realities because at the at the end of the day what we realize when we pay attention to these realities is that the chinese communist party dictatorship is a sort of a janus faced threat we're aware of the menace that it wishes to impose um, the international community. But the flip side of that is what the dictatorship imposes upon its own subjects. And in a way, the Chinese Communist Party dictatorship has kind of taken Lenin and perfected Lenin. Lenin uh, had a chilling, but I think unforgettable phrase in the 1920s, which I think explains the totalitarian claim better than anything else I've heard. In one of his speeches, he said, we recognize nothing private. Well, that's the essence of totalitarianism, recognizing nothing private. But as a matter of fact, the Soviet Union didn't go as far as the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, there were massacres of families. And of course, there is spying on families. Of course, there are all sorts of things that we associate with the terror from the Soviet era that uh, inflicted upon victim families in the USSR. But the idea that the state
state would make the claim to how many children parents would be able to have. That was an ambition that the Soviets never even thought of. And I think, Nick, that for many people in the West, it's something that we've gotten used to and have accepted as, sadly, something that must be done in the face of the population pressures of China. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a beneficiary of the China of the China's um, one-child policy. I have an adopted daughter from China, <laughs> and yeah. my husband and I, our family, are uh, people who've been blessed by this yeah. in a yeah. in a tangential way because I would never. Yeah. I would never wish anyone to have to lose their birth family and their, their birth country, even if yes. even if there's a happy ending at the end for our daughter and for us. But I do find I'm always shocked at the complacency and the lack of the lack of concern for fellow human beings who are subjected, who have been subjected for generations now to, as you say, the most intrusive, horrifying uh, reach from the government into the heart of the family. Well, it's partly, I'd say, a, a failure of public education. I don't think enough Americans understand the realities that China's subject population is subjected to. Mm-hmm. Part of it, though, may also be, I'm sad to say this, a failure of compassion on our own part. If we think about what such practices would mean uh, if applied to us, What, what would mean for our friends and loved ones. It's really inconceivable. It's really unimaginable. For a long time, there were apologists for China's population control program for the uh, involuntary coercive family planning methods that the Chinese dictatorship used. If there's any bright spot, I don't think that there are an awful lot of apologists for this anymore. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to front for. That is a bright spot if, if there has been an increase in, in compassion and in, and in knowledge of what it means on the ground. But your documentary is not just about the human impact on, on an individual basis on individual families, but your documentary is also more specifically about how this plays out after all these many years in economic and big picture social ways. Yeah, sure. We can't do the historical counterfactual. We can't do the what would have happened if this had never taken place. So we have to we have to be a little bit cautious about what the consequences of the coercive policy have been. Because if we look at a spot like Hong Kong, which hasn't been under the PRC jackboot, at least until now, with an open society, a Chinese culture population in Hong Kong dropped to birth levels that were very close to one birth per woman per lifetime. So we can't say that this only could have happened under coercive police state. But I think we I think we can be pretty sure about some of the consequences. We can be pretty sure that to the extent that police power was successful, this speeded up the the drop to severe below replacement fertility in China and thus speeded up the date at which working age population peaked and brought the date of future national population decline, which hasn't come quite yet, but brought it closer to us than would otherwise have been. It speeded up the aging of the society and 
it's certainly exacerbated the imbalance in the number of baby boys and baby girls. The policy has been going on long enough that this means there's a enormous marriage squeeze that is currently beginning to affect China and will be affecting Chinese society for decades to come. All of these things we can attribute as consequences, unintended consequences for the most part, of the most radical social experiment that humanity has ever undertaken up until now. Nick, if four grandparents in China have one grandchild between them, which is the way it has to turn out if there's a one-child policy, how does that one child, when he grows or she grows up, how does she take care of all four grandparents in a, in a society that doesn't have elder care uh, built into the, to the greater society? Isn't that a good question? That's one of the unintended consequences that the planners didn't think through. Now, because in reality, because in actuality, not everyone in China during the one-child policy period ended up having just a single child. In the countryside, it ended up being much more like a one-and-a-half-child policy for various reasons. Because, because not everybody just had a single child, all of China is not 4-2-1. That 4-2-1 phenomenon is starting to emerge now in urban areas in particular particular because urban China, places like gigantic cities like Shanghai and Beijing have had birth levels very close to one birth per woman per lifetime for decades and actually sometimes below one birth per woman. Sometimes people aren't even picking up their ration coupon. <laughs> Those are the most affluent areas of China. Those are the areas where people are most likely to have pensions or some some equivalent to our uh, national social security system as the way of backup. The enormous obligations that are conferred upon young uh, adults or young prospective parents in the, the sort of a 421 situation kind of turn Confucianism on its head. It was easier to have a, uh, a Confucian tradition when older people were scarce. It's easier to venerate a relatively limited number of older <laughs> people. But when you have more people in their 70s than children under five, as, as we're going to find in China very soon, all sorts of other things happen too. It's not just the strain of uh, contending obligations. It's the changing tenor of the tenor of society. And China's not going to be a very fun place to grow old in in the decades immediately ahead, in part because of the revolution that's taking place in the family and the atrophy of the extended kinship network that has been the fabric and the lifeblood of Chinese civilization since the beginning of written history in China. Another thing that we'll be missing physically are girls, are women. And as the society is male-heavy from sex-selective abortions and mm -hmm. infanticide and even the adoption out of girls like my daughter, you create a society which has that sex imbalance. Uh, what does that mean for society when the civilizing influence of women is lessened? Well, I don't think anything good. We can look to Chinese science fiction, I suppose, for 
kind of guesses about how this would play out in the future. Chinese science fiction writers, even though they're obviously writing about their own country now, can pretend they're writing about other planets far away in mm-hmm. times that have never occurred. Pretty grim prognoses there. The outlook for guys and for girls in some senses, I think, would be quite different because of the surfeit of men. The sorts of homework that, that have been done on demographic projections suggest that there'd be a lot more cut-loose men in China's future than today. Nick, it's, it's time for us to say goodbye, but I wanted to ask you, what is the state of population control in China right now? The, the government put aside the one-child policy in 2015, but it did not abandon population control or repudiated it. Rather, it doubled down on the government's claim to have a role in determining how many children should be born in China in the future. Mm. And it may turn out, it may turn out in our lifetimes that the Chinese Communist Party pulls a 180 and moves towards coercive pronatal policies, in which case it will be using police state power to try to force people to have more children. The only constant is the government's claim that it has the right to decide, not parents. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time and for shedding a light on this great crisis in China. To find out more information about Nick Eberstadt's documentary called Why China's One-Child Policy is a Tragedy Like No Other, visit American Enterprise Institute at AEI.org. And thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for inviting me. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. He's going to ask us the same two momentous questions he asked the apostles 2,000 years ago in Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? They get to Jesus' real identity. Who is Jesus? And who is he in my life? In response to the first question, the apostles said that their informal poll showed that the people were numbering Jesus among their greatest figures, past and present. Some, like the murderous Herod Antipas, who had decapitated the Lord's precursor, were saying Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others were claiming he was Elijah, the greatest of all the prophets, the one whose return they believed would set the stage for the Messianic age. Others said he was Jeremiah, the one whom they believed had hidden the ark and the altar of sacrifice before the destruction of the temple, and the one they anticipated would return to reinstitute true worship. At the time Jesus asked the question, many of the Jews were accustomed to say that there hadn't been prophets for 400 years. And therefore, whoever Jesus was, the crowds believed that he was likely the greatest figure in four centuries. But as high as those estimations of Jesus' reputation were, they weren't even close to reality. We hear similar things today about Jesus. Many, including Christians, say that Jesus was a very good man, compassionate, kind, encouraged people to love, imparted a peaceful philosophy of life, was the holiest guy who ever lived. In short, they admired Jesus, but Jesus didn't come and die for people's approval or admiration. It's not enough. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Jesus was either who he said he was, the Son of God made man, or a lunatic who mistakenly thought he was the Son of God made man, or a fraud and the worst liar of all time. 
That's why Jesus' second question is so important. He asked his closest followers, who do you say that I am? It's clear that each of the apostles would have been grappling with the question of Jesus' identity as they heard him preach, watched him heal the sick, cleanse lepers, exercise demons, multiply food, walk on water, and calm storms. But 11 of the 12 apostles stayed silent. They probably feared going on record, even if every ounce of their being recognized that Jesus was someone beyond what the mob was murmuring. Jesus, Peter, however, took that risk. He stood up boldly and replied that Jesus was far more than a great prophet, far more than the greatest figure in centuries, far more even than Moses. He wasn't even merely the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior for whom the Jews had been waiting for a millennium. He was the Son of the living God. Peter's was a great act of faith, a courageous profession holding nothing back, one that Jesus noted he couldn't have said all on his own. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, he replied, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. The only way we can confess Jesus to be Messiah, Son of God, Savior of the world, and Lord is by a special grace of God the Father in the Holy Spirit, who reveals this wisdom to us by the same means he revealed it to Simon Peter. And like Simon Peter, we need to respond to God's grace to confess Jesus in this way, to go out and give audacious witness that Jesus is the Savior and the long-desired of the nations. At the end of today's gospel, Jesus strictly ordered the apostles not to tell anyone he was the Messiah, because he feared that they would class that the crowds would classify Jesus according to their own political messianic expectations, instead of learn to accept Jesus on his own terms of mission. But Jesus, after the fulfillment of his mission, with his passion, death, and resurrection, has commanded and commissioned us to do the exact opposite, to go to the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. This proclamation we make of Jesus' true identity is not supposed to be some dry Joe Friday factual declaration, like a monotone, apathetic recitation of what we say in the Creed. It's meant to be a proclamation of someone we know intimately, like we would identify our husband or wife or son or daughter or brother or sister, done with joyful words and witness. As Pope Francis wrote in his exhortation, Joy of the Gospel, it's not the same thing to have known Jesus as not to have known him. Not the same thing to walk with him as to walk blindly. Not the same thing to hear his word as not to know it. Not the same thing to contemplate him, to worship him, to find our peace in him as not to. With Jesus, life becomes richer, and that with him it is easier to find meaning in everything. God the Father will give us the grace that exceeds what flesh and blood revealed to us, so that we too may proclaim Jesus' identity in the midst of the world, and how he who is grounds who we are. But in this consequential conversation, it's important that we also focus on Jesus' confession that took place after Peter's. Jesus said, For my part, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld will not prevail against it. We've heard the words of this gospel so many times that we can miss their true shock value. Jesus changed the name of Simon, son of John, to Rock, Kepha in Aramaic, Petra in Greek, and said that he was going to erect the continuance of his entire saving mission on him. That would be astonishing to happen to any man. But this is the same Simon whose first words to Jesus were, Depart from me, O Lord, from a sinful man. The same Simon who next Sunday Jesus will call Satan for trying to prevent his suffering and death in Jerusalem. The same Simon who would betray the Lord three times on Holy Thursday to stay warm by a fire. The same Simon who would be MIA at the crucifixion. There must have been many others seemingly more qualified at the time, not just among the apostles, but among the disciples, and especially among the scholars of the law and Pharisees. But God chose Simon Peter and gave him his own incredible authority. 
Jesus made Peter his vicar, his authoritative proxy, his definitive ambassador, to act in his name. He gave Peter, he said, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, to bind and loose on heaven and on earth. He received those keys and has passed them down to his successors, right down until his 265th successor, Pope Francis. Sometimes the popes would be great saints. Sometimes they were pretty uninspiring men. On a few occasions, they actually were notorious sinners. But Christ has continued to choose men to be his living rock. He continues to construct his church in the papacy, continues to give the Pope his keys, and to send the Holy Spirit to help the Pope in a particular way to confess him and feed and tend the sheep he has entrusted to him. That's why if we have faith in Jesus, we must have faith in Jesus' confession in his, in, in his institution of the papacy. When the Pope writes or says something applying God's revelation to the nitty-gritty situation of today's world, we should listen to what he's saying, especially when he's teaching definitively about something on faith and morals. Do we read papal encyclicals and exhortations? Do we pay attention to the Angelus messages he gives us each Sunday or to the, his Wednesday catechesis? We also must have real reverence for the Pope. Many Catholics stand in judgment of the Pope, evaluating what he says on the basis of their personal preferences, and often weigh what the Pope teaches is less valuable than their own opinions about the way things ought to be. Sometimes we behave as if we believe we have a better grasp of God's ways than the successor of St. Peter on things we need to do or believe to please God and enter fully into his life. This doesn't take what Jesus has done seriously. The Pope is infallible, we know, only when he teaches definitively about faith and morals, in union with the deposit of faith to be held by all people at all times. But that doesn't mean that the rest that the Pope says is the equivalent of an opinion column in a high school newspaper. To believe in Jesus means to believe in what he did in instituting the papacy. To believe in the papacy means to reverence the Pope, to pray for the Pope, and to listen to the Pope, unlike we listen to any other human being. This Sunday is an opportunity for us to join Simon Peter and shout out with words and in our life, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and to order our life consistent with that confession as Peter did. It's also a time to join Jesus in shouting out to Peter and all his successors, you are rock, and on this rock the Lord has built his church, to pray for him and to build our life on the teachings of the one whom Jesus made the rock. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 